Hey, if you have a Bible or if you want to open up your Bible app on your phone, head over to 1 Peter. I'm going to do two things today, two things. One is I'm going to jump us back into our First Peter teaching series. We kicked this off in the fall, taking a break for Advent and uh, Vision Time in January, and we are jumping back into the book of First Peter, which is going to take us right up until Easter or so. But the second thing I also want to do is I want to kind of reposition our, our minds and our hearts for what it is God has called us to as a church and what that looks like for this season that we find ourselves in right now. So, Sherry and I did the last kind of two couple of sermons in First Peter. We were talking about marriage, husband and wives over the Christmas break. And uh, in a broad sense, just to like catch you up, Peter has been laying down some thick theology, theology like who God is, uh, what he's done, who we are because of what he's done. And now he's walking out the implications of that work of God. So he's helping us understand how what God has done transforms our marriages, transforms our workplaces, transforms how we interact with one another. And especially, he's helping Christians who are in exile, this is his immediate audience, understand how to live well, wisely, and holy in a home that is not our home. And we, of course, reading this 2,000 some odd years later, can understand that this is not our ultimate home. And so as he's speaking to us about living in exile, about living in a coercive culture around us, about living in a country, a nation, or dare I say an empire that does not follow the way of Jesus, he's helping us understand how we live well in that context. And I hope you're starting to see some of the patterns that are emerging in First Peter. Like primarily, I hope you see Peter's desire for us to live as faithful exiles. He really wants to shape us into followers of Jesus that live distinctly, holy, or set apart, faithful lives in a land that is not our permanent home while we anticipate the return of Jesus. So he's going to start this section that we're in today with the word finally, which means he's kind of putting a bow on a section. He's wrapping up a little bit of a section of this letter. And that particular section started with our identity in Christ. So if you've got your thumb in 1 Peter chapter 2, just flip over to uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, flip over to chapter 2 real quick, verses 11 and 12. This is what he's been talking about and fleshing out so far. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles or among those who are not known by Jesus yet honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so that's what he's been talking about. And then after verse 12, he's just been unpacking what that looks like in different contexts. So your workplace context as citizens of an empire and as those who might be married. This is what this looks like. He talks about all the different areas of our life where we're to do those quote unquote good deeds that he talks about. So the gospel, he says, is going to shape your behaviors, right? Not just your thinking and not just your theology, but actually how you live. And the world is going to notice because you operate with something different. You operate with a different motivation, a different set of hopes and desires. And as we dig into this particular section of the letter, just know that Peter is still building on that idea in verses 11 and 12. Live a different life, live a different kind of life, because the world will see Jesus through you, or they won't. Peter will claim that our ability to continue living graciously 
rests in a proper understanding of our calling to be faithful exiles. And what he's going to tell us today is that calling is to be a blessing to the world around us. So our text for today, 1 Peter 3, start in verse 8. Peter says, finally, so he's wrapping up this section. He started in chapter 2. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here, Peter is basically saying, don't live like everyone else. Because as we see what he's saying in verses eight and nine, we can see that in the world around us. And when we are not in our healthiest moments, we can see that in our lives as well. Peter next invites us to live this counterintuitive life of being unified, of having sympathy, of walking in brotherly and sisterly love with tender hearts, not paying back evil for evil, but blessing when we are cursed. And it's worth pausing for a moment and just saying, Anthem Church, I see this in you. Like I see the fruit of the gospel in you. As we talk about unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly and sisterly love, like I see that in our church community. Peter here is giving hyper-practical with his instructions to believers, to followers of Jesus in a contentious world, in a world where they're not in power Our nature and our sense of justice says if somebody does something that hurts us, then they should feel hurt too. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If somebody does something that offends us, then they should feel offense too. And Peter is saying, no, 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 that's how everybody else lives. Instead, when that happens to you, you're called to be a blessing. Jesus even goes so far to say, pray for those people. The gospel of Jesus says that in the same way Jesus suffered the ultimate offense and we are his agents here on earth, we can now absorb the lashes of a desperate world so that the desperate world might experience the kindness and grace of Jesus. Peter goes on to say, to the contrary, bless, for this is what you are called to, to be a blessing. Often uh, people, people ask like themselves or maybe me as like a pastor or, or mentor in their lives, like what is the will of God for my life? And often I just say like pick, pick a page in the Bible and chances are you will find a Bible writer telling you what the will of God is for your life. Today in our text, Peter is telling us the will of God for your life is to be a blessing to the world around you. Not to counteract evil with evil, but to actually bring good into those moments. As a Christian community, Peter says, you are called to be a blessing. Not only are you you to not retaliate, but in response to the evil actions done against you, Peter calls on people filled by the Spirit of God to respond to evil and reviling with proactive blessing. Now, think about your last week momentarily, at work, in class, with a friend, Who offended you? Somebody did, right? No one had an A plus 100% week. Chances are you were offended by someone. How did you respond? You internalize it, hold bitterness against them. Did you lash out and pay back their offense with offense of your own? Peter says our responsibility as believers, as those who have the privilege of having the gospels, that we actually repay those moments with blessing. 
And he continues in verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's quoting Psalm 34, a Psalm we actually encountered in our uh, Bible reading as a church uh, a couple of days ago. And he's making sure, he's making sure we know what godly living looks like. He wants to make sure that we know God hears us when we are offended. And we are called to look like him and respond like him. He continues, verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Later on, he's going to say, it's no use if, if you're punished for doing stupid things. But if you are doing good or these good deeds that he says earlier, who is there to harm you? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. The idea is that if we're going to do the will of the Lord, it doesn't make sense that somebody should harm us. But chances are they will, right? Even though we're walking in the grace of God, it's God's hand of mercy lived out, but we probably will suffer. Often we suffer for stupidity instead Peter's calling us to suffer for righteousness sake. He says, you will be blessed. Peter's saying that living a life as a citizen of heaven is ultimately good for the world around us. And it doesn't make sense that you'll be persecuted, but when it happens, there is blessing in it. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, he says. But, verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There are going to be people who harm you for doing good. Peter says not to be afraid of them or be troubled by it. He says, expect it and don't worry about it. It'll happen if we settle that it'll happen in our minds that we can move on with our lives. He says, honor Christ in your hearts as holy, which means set apart for God. It doesn't mean morally superior or self-righteous. It just means distinct or different. Peter's encouragement for how to withstand insult and injury is to have Christ in your heart, to meditate, to dwell on the reality that the gospel is deposited into you. Always being prepared, he continues in verse 15, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, by the way, Peter's really careful with his words, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right? Peter's scenario here is that someone would persecute you for doing good, but you, with Christ in your heart, demonstrate something powerful, and they ask you for a reason for your hope. So you're persecuted, you're slandered, you're maybe uh, someone is reviling you, you're maybe thought of as strange or weird or out of touch. They see that good deeds, that good behavior, they see Christ in you, they slander you for it, and then you in your life respond in such a way that they actually stop and they go, wait a second, why are you living like this? Shouldn't you pay back to me what I just gave you? You just slandered me to our boss, and you're the one who was really doing shady stuff. Why are you not returning the favor to me? P Peter is getting at something really, really important here, that before you ever open your mouth, your life should demand an answer. 
that your life should look so different because you have the gospel of God that you don't need to shove the gospel down someone's throat, but simply your actions will demand kind of a question and answer moment. Where they go, wait, wait a second. Why, why are you responding like that, actually? Why is that? Maybe you get fired, maybe you get laid off. And your coworkers who also got fired or laid off say, how come you're, you're, you're not doing the same things we're doing? Does your life demand an answer? If I can just be really blunt here, here's why no one's asking you for a reason for the hope that you have. Because your life looks like everybody else. And this is so easy in a world, in a state, in a city that is so amazing and so comfortable. And there is little need on the surface to rely on Jesus or live differently. Especially in easygoing beach town Ventura. You wonder why verse 15 isn't happening in your life. Maybe it's because the preceding verses aren't happening in your life. Maybe when you're reviled, when someone offends you, when someone hurts you, you just pay them right back. Or maybe not out loud, but you're harboring bitterness and resentment. And in that way, you're just like everybody else. Why would anyone ask you or me to defend this otherworldly hope that we have if they only see the same hope that they have? If when we lose our job, if when we get in a fight with our spouse, if when we have like a bad parenting moment with our kiddos and we respond like everybody else around them, why are they would ever ask you to talk to them about Jesus? Why would they, why would they ever ask you, hey, what do you do on Sundays? What, what do you believe? Because they just assume your hope is the same as their hope. So what Peter's writing here is a very, very, very high bar to live very, very differently than the world around us. In a way that people should look at your life and go, wait, wait, why do you look different? Why do you sound different? Why don't you sound like us? Why aren't you responding like us? Why don't you parent like us? Why don't you fight with your spouse like us? Why don't you treat your boss like us? Does your life demand a response? Or is it just the same as everyone else's? I believe this really has profound implications, not just for our individual lives, and it most certainly does. And I am deeply challenged and stirred when I read these couple of verses. But it also has profound implications for our church. Is the way we're interacting as a community demanding a response from our friends and our family around us? Or do we look just like everyone else? Are we just church hopping like everyone else? Are we vaguely, flakily committed to community just like everyone else? Are we not really serious about reading our Bible or, or praying just like everyone else? I, I think personally, I'll just, you know, I'll say like Paul, you know, this is like me. This is not the word of God. I think a like dull consumer Christian life is the least appealing thing. I think Jesus in the book of Revelation has something to say about being hot or cold and not lukewarm. I think, honestly, in the chaos, confusion, disruption, and distraction of our world, I think our city, I think our country needs Christians who are actually living the way of Jesus, not living this consumer cultural Christianity thing. How do we have any credibility to share a gospel conversation with Jesus if we're like, flaky about our relationship with Jesus or the church. 
Like you have no credibility. Peter's bar is very high. And I think every single one of us, myself included, should read those words and go like, whoa, I don't know if I, if I measure up. And I'm thankful in these moments, the gospel is not about you measuring up, but it's about Jesus's grace extended to you and wherever you are inviting you into more, inviting you into deeper discipleship, inviting you into more radical obedience as more radical grace is extended towards you. To say like, yeah, you don't have it all together. And maybe up until today, your life hasn't looked that different, but there's an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus today and going, wow, like you have moved towards me already in your radical grace and you are calling me into more. And so every time the gospel is presented, every time the gospel is unpacked, there's an opportunity for you, no matter where you are at with Jesus, to respond and to choose to live differently. And, and there's a bit of responsibility on your part hearing the the words of scripture, hearing the gospel message of Jesus to leave changed or unchanged. This is not guilt, not at all. It is deep invitation. And to know that following Jesus is not easy. It is not simple. It is not comfortable. And chances are, it will not look like the world around you. This has implications for us as individuals, but also as a church. And it's partly why last fall we made a pretty significant pivot as a church, right? It was catalyzed by our current moment of, of a global pandemic that we find ourselves in and some pretty weird political stuff. And if you are in the church world at all, some pretty weird church stuff around the nation. And if you keep up on any of that news, you know, we are very close to some very loud and outspoken church kind of Christian leaders in Southern California. We live in a weird cultural moment. There's restrictions on gatherings and buildings and all of that. And instead of fighting back, responding in kind, or sort of like walking away with our tail between our legs, we as a church community wanted to respond with imagination and creativity and innovation. Like what can the Holy Spirit do in this moment that we have maybe not been even open to before? And that's what really catalyzed a pretty significant change for us as a church back in the fall time. Rather than being limited by budget or buildings, teams of people, we wanted anybody anywhere to experience the good news of Jesus. And anyone and anywhere to play an active role in the church. And we knew this would be a bit uncomfortable for those who are used to sitting and consuming and watching. Because what we were trying to get after is a is a way of doing church we saw in the New Testament where somehow everyone had something to bring to the table. And it's easy to be confused about that in a setting like this. And these are beautiful and necessary and there are good things that happen in a setting like this where you are talked at for 20 or 30 minutes and we get to sing and are led by some really talented musicians. But there is also something deeply missing if this is your only church experience. Because when I read through the book of 1 Corinthians, particularly 12 and 14, I see that every single person has a part to play. So what if we structured our church around the idea that everyone has something to bring to the table? And so that's where Anthem House to House came from. That phrase comes out of Acts chapter 5 where it says they met in the temple and house to house. And for us, we wanted to flip the script on how we are gathering and meeting and even what our philosophy of ministry is as a church 
to actually shift the primary gathering from the bigger, larger, non-relational gatherings like this. Like, love this. Like, I love this. I love worshiping with you guys. I love hanging out with you guys. I like talking to a big group of people. It doesn't make me weird or uncomfortable at all. I enjoy this quite a bit. But if this is our only engagement with the church, this is just an event. But if we're actually part of a family, then the primary rhythm of a church should be a context where everyone has something to bring to the table. Which I think necessarily means they have to be smaller than this. They have to be in a space where everyone's voice can be heard. And for you, that may, you may be like fist pumping in your mind right now. And for others of you, it may make you really uncomfortable. Because it may challenge this version of church that you've heard before in your mind or even experienced with your life. And you may even be thinking, I don't know what I have to bring. I can't teach. I'm not a musician. Like, I don't know what to do in those moments. And for others, I think genuinely it challenges a desire on your part to not be asked of anything. And once again, to be really, really blunt, that's just not church. To sit in a large crowd where nothing's asked of you just does not seem to reckon with what we, what we see in the scripture. And so we knew Anthem House to House would so run against this passive consumer Christianity that we've all been so accustomed to. But we wanted to be faithful to the scriptures and to reimagine church in a way that is not impacted by global pandemics. Global pandemic, sure, we can meet over Zoom, cool. We can't do huge groups, cool. We'll meet outside in a backyard if necessary. We'll roll with it. The church should be the most creative and resilient entity on the face of the planet because we're meant to reflect God, who's the most creative thing ever. The most creative being in the universe created us to be like him. So we can leave those old wineskins behind. We can embrace some new ones. One of my favorite authors and writers, and I'm sure you guys have heard me yap about this before, is Mark Sayers. And in one of my absolute favorite books by him, The Road Trip That Changed the World. Is that Siegel going after those donuts? Oh my. He's going to be disappointed by that kid's bag. <laughs> There's just nothing in there for seagulls. That's not a knock against the kid's bag. All right, anyway. Mark Sayers, one of my favorite writers, authors. He develops this idea in that book called Pact. P-A-C-T. Passive, aggressive consumer trap. And he says, this is the dominant way most of us in the West approach God, approach the church, approach really our jobs, anything in life. And what he means by that idea is that we live in a culture that prizes critique, that prizes personal preference, opinions, maybe even talking a big game, but not actually having any skin in the game, not actually doing anything different in our lives. So we can watch a documentary and get all amped up about something, but never actually change our lives. That means we can get all like, self-righteous with our version of church that we think is the most biblical, but not actually change anything in our lives. And this is really like the opposite of what it means to follow Jesus, that somehow we are highly interested in receiving something of value, having lots of opinions, having a big game, saying, I don't really like the way this, I didn't really feel like I wasn't welcomed in or I wasn't connected or whatever. And to say like, I'm going to write them off. Not actually having skin in the game, not actually doing anything different in life. And, and really, honestly, that's opposite of the way of Jesus. And it's opposite of what we're trying to go after as a church. Like, I'm not going to say we got this nailed perfectly. But this is what we're trying to strive after, where we all have some skin in the game. 
where we all have something to contribute, something to bring to the table. And when I read through 1 Peter chapter 3, I see a life characterized by running after God's heart first and caring about the world or other people's opinions or even my personal preferences very much last. The good life is the hard life, trusting Jesus. And chances are it'll cost you something. Now granted, this text is about suffering. And if we're having a global perspective, we're not really suffering right now. I mean, like, guys, to do outside church in Ventura in this February, come on, this is not suffering. You guys are getting a tan right now. This is not suffering at all. But we can say it is inconvenience, maybe. Changing up some of our patterns is, is difficult. It's different. It's a shakeup. And that may challenge some of our preconceived notions, sure. But the invitation of this text and of scriptures actually bend our life around the values of the kingdom of God, not our own personal preference. And in the gospel, we have been promised an unfathomable inheritance, ours freely for the taking because of the grace of God. Now, listen to me as I say all that about kind of the culture at large and what we're trying to get after as a church. Once again, like this is not This is not guilt. It's not shame. It's not saying if you do this, you're a bad person, but it's saying if you've been won over by the grace of God, you, there is a desire in you implanted by the Holy Spirit to bend your life around the values of the kingdom of God, not have the kingdom of God bend around your personal values. This comes from a knowledge of the deep, beautiful, saving work of Jesus who has moved towards you in grace and mercy and is calling you to a better way to live. This is better. This is the good life. And I genuinely believe when we submit our lives to the kingdom of God in this way, we reap a better life. When I or someone else comes and and talks at you for 20 or 30 minutes about the kingdom of God, it's not because it's worse or we're trying to convince you to do something that is worse. It's because we genuinely are convinced that the way of Jesus is the best way to live. And the values of the kingdom of God are way better than our self-centric, like self-centered practices. And genuinely have seen fruit in our lives and in your lives and the life of our church. Our calling now is to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts, knowing that when our eternity is secured by that kind of commitment, all other concerns become slight in comparison. I know COVID's been hard. I know it's forced a challenging of what we understand about faith. I know it's forced a challenging in our minds of like what we understand about the church even and about our own lives, about our jobs, about our families, our careers. Everything looks different because of COVID. Everything has been shaken up by this last year that we've had. But what if we saw all of this in the last year through the lens of eternity? Through the lens of the life God is leading you towards now and the, God, and the life he's leading you towards forever into eternity. What if that's how we lived? Shaped by eternity. And then people asked, Why? What if we were counterculturally committed to one another? What if we were counterculturally resilient in a time when everyone just feels kind of dull and in a rut and fatigued about everything around us? 
Like, what if we lived vibrantly in the Spirit? Maybe someone would look at your life or my life and ask, why? Why are you happy? Why did it seem like you have hope? Why are you living differently? Why aren't you isolating like everybody else? And we have an opportunity with gentleness and respect to give a defense for the hope that we have. What if people saw our church as not the ones who are shaking our fists at the government or quietly going into the night, but as those living with otherworldly hope, knowing that like, can't meet inside? No sweat, we'll meet outside. Got to meet online for a while? No sweat. Got to meet in some backyards? Cool. Sounds great. We're going to be a little bit smaller in a backyard? Cool. I got something to bring because the Holy Spirit's in me. Like, what if that was our posture? And then those around us who only read about the church in their news app and some crazy person here, some crazy person there shaking their fists at the government or whatever, or defying this or defying that, making a stink. And what if they looked at you and be like, hey, are you part of that thing? You say, no, 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 this is how our church is, is doing things. Once again, it's not that we got it all figured out or we're perfect. We're trying. We're trying to run towards what we see in Scripture. We're trying to run towards being a good, credible witness in this world. And we're trying to run towards a life that actually demands an answer from someone else. That demands like, well, why does your life look different? Why does your, why does your church look different? Hey, I just read on Saturday, the Supreme Court said California churches convene inside. Why are we still outside? And you have an opportunity to explain. We're not headed back to our building, guys. If that's what you're hoping for, you're going to be really disappointed. We're not heading back there. And what if other people saw that? And say, hold on, tell me, tell me more about that. Why are you guys meeting in backyards again? Tell me more about that. What if? I think in this text... Peter just wants us to live as though we actually believe the gospel. I think that's like challenging to me. And maybe that's where I'll leave it with you guys. Challenging to you guys. Like what if you actually lived as if you believe the gospel? What if? And like, if you're anything like me, 10% is maybe conviction. And maybe 90% is like wonder or like curiosity or like, yeah, what if actually? What, what might that look like? Could that be different? Oh, that's interesting. I want to challenge you with that. I want to bless you with that. I want to challenge you with that. And I want to invite you into being creative for the kingdom of God. So that when people look at your life, your family's life, your, your anthem community rhythms, your church life as a whole, they go like, wait a second, how come? How come that's different? Why are you living differently? And you have an opportunity to unpack the why with them. I'm not really a fan of like, you know, soapbox preaching or handing out tracts or stuff like that. I think my favorite way to share the gospel with someone is when they look at our life and go like, wait, 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 how come, how come you and Sherry parent your kids like that? And we can tell them how Jesus has changed us. Hey, how come you guys are like meeting in random fields or backyards? And oh, let me tell you how. Jesus changes our thinking on that. I think there's so much potential there. I'm like blown away by it, how much potential and opportunity there is in those moments. So I want to encourage you in this. If you're feeling any level of conviction or whatever, 
sit in that for a moment. Not guilt and shame. You can check that out your mind. But if you're feeling like Holy Spirit conviction in that moment, sit with that for a second and ask maybe why. Yeah, maybe my commitment's like slackened off a little bit. Maybe, maybe my life has sort of been me-centric a little ways. Maybe I have been expecting something different. Sit with that. Do some business with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And say, like, what, what is that actually? Like, none of us are perfect. So chances are there's something for everyone in this moment to, like, deal with with the Holy Spirit. But don't stay there. I think deal, deal with that and then move to the space where you're going, like, God, what do you actually have for me? What do you got for me? I know, I know I've got your spirit in me. If you follow Jesus, you've got his spirit in you. And you're like, all right, what do, what do you got for me? And where I live or with my, where I work, with my friends, with my neighbors, in my Anthem community, in my core group, what do you got for me? I'm ready. And I think like if that's our posture and if that's the one thing you take away from today and you remember from today that Peter wants us to actually live as though we believe the gospel and we go like, yeah, where am I? Where's that not jiving with me? Let's deal with that. And then like, God, what do you have for me? I think that's beautiful. And I think a little church plant like us can have crazy impact on a city around us. And I'm excited about that. I'm pumped about that. I think success right now is rejecting consumer Christianity, church shopping, attending an event to get your spiritual shot in the arm, and actually embracing like true discipleship. And saying, God, what do you have for me? How do I live a life where people ask me why I live the way I do? This deep communion with Jesus, living with an awareness of and connection to the spirit and the everyday stuff of life, cultivating otherworldly practices, habits, and rhythms. I think that's where I want to land. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I think that's the call for us today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to like pray that blessing for you right now. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to do something with you right now. And maybe it's a moment of conviction and repentance and confession you got to deal with. And maybe it's a moment of like saying, yeah, all right, I'm ready. Like reignite this dormant thing I have going on in my life and like show me what you have for me right now. So I'm going to pray that and then we're going to worship some more. So that's going to be, that's going to be our flow right here. Um, yeah, Jesus, I, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your word towards us. Thank you that uh, it is your scripture and your spirit, not me, that's, that's changing lives. Um, that's bending our minds and our hearts towards you. I, I just pray in this moment, give us courage to not actually run out of this moment too quickly to actually sit here with the sun on our backs and wiggly kids around us. Like, just give us a moment to actually deal with this text in our minds and, uh, and to deal with maybe some of the conviction you're stirring up in us. Give us the courage. Don't let us uh, succumb to fear right now. Give us the courage to actually do that. And also give us Give us like your imagination. Give us your eyes for the city. Give us your eyes for our life. Give us your eyes for how we're to engage the world around us well. How to be good and witness as well. Help us to be innovative and creative. And help us take up our cross. Deny ourselves. Bend our life around the values of the kingdom of God and not try to force the kingdom of God to bend around my values. 
I pray in this moment where we can do a bit of business with you and, and sort through this kind of conviction moment, that you'd reveal your grace and your mercy towards us. Then the gospel tells us that we are sons and daughters, we're chosen, we have an inheritance, and there's actually nothing we can do to separate us from your love. But in your grace and your mercy, you don't leave us where you found us. You call us towards maturity and growth and sanctification. So would you help us? And as we worship, would this even be like a, an act of lifting our eyes, our heart, our mouths to you and off ourselves? Help us as a church. Jesus, lead us and guide us as a church community, trying to earnestly live your way in this world. Uh, Jesus, we're grateful for the work of your Holy Spirit. Thankful for these moments to be convicted, but to also be shown your love and to be encouraged by your scripture. Thanks, Jesus.